What? What? I can't sit down. You can't sit down? What's, what's the matter? Alvin butt, took the chair. Alvin took the chair. Oh, yeah. He's got the, he's got the, uh, the twitchy tail. Like, go ahead. Touch me. I'll kill you. <laughs> well, now he just did the, I'm going to stretch. He's just stretched out and laid laid his head on his on his legs. Like, yeah, go ahead. Touch me. And his tail is still twitching. MF. <laughs> All right. All right. Here we go. I'm going to try to move the cat. All right, Alvin. Get out of here. Come on. Come on. Get up. Uh, you want to bring Scott in because uh, he's like, hey, hey, I'm like, hey, what's up? He's like, not much. We doing a show, and I'm, and I'm saying, I was about to type, yeah, Paul and I are talking now. What's up? Hey, this is uh, the first time I've ever gone on to the Grand Comics database, and I have to say, it sucks ass. I can't make heads or tails of this. What are you looking for info in your book? Yeah, because there's not shit on Mike's Amazing World or. Uh, Comics, uh, what is it? Comic Book DB, the database. I mean, there was a little bit of information in there in, in the Comic Book DB. I at least found who worked on the book, but that was about it. But damn, Classics Illustrated is confusing, man. I do not have a written synopsis, so it's going to be the synopsis on the fly. It's going to be a bill type synopsis. Oh boy. <laughs> no, it will not be epic length. At least I hope it won't be. Anyway, yeah, I'm not finding any any creator information on this book at all. I found uh, what was his name? Kirk Blum, is the creator. Blum, Alex Blum was the was the name that I wasn't found. that your original co-host? <laughs> wasn't no, that Alex I Trebek? Don't think so. <laughs> Comic book DB. What you guys been up to? Uh, I've been cleaning out some space so you can stay in here in my house. <laughs> How, we use the term house loosely. Hey, I'm making a spot. Uh, I'm, there's a lovely Paul. Yeah, I see. I gotta watch what I say because Paul records everything, so I can't say anything. We all record everything. <laughs> Not me, because I, I can't get my recorder to work, so I'm having issues. Yeah. You haven't had. When was the last time you had an issue? I don't know. Oh, did you watch the? Did you guys watch the the new um, uh, Star Trek Continues that I posted up on the? Thing? I didn't watch it yet. No, but but I saw. I could. I could just. I could just hear him going for his protective order against you. <laughs> now, now, Vic is not going to do that. <laughs> Vic's hanging out with Matt Hunsworth right now. Cowering somewhere. <laughs> no, it, it was it was cool because Kirk gets Kirk gets well. One Colin Baker is an opening scene. He plays like a minister of a planet that they're going down on to give them this planetary defense system because they're joining the Federation. And then these uh, rebels that don't want their it's like a twin planet system, and they don't want that that planet to join the Federation. So they attack Kirk, and they hit him in the back of the head. So they give Kirk an experimental drug to stabilize his brain because he's freaking out. And um, he starts to see all his old loves. He sees um, the android chick that self-destructed 
well, not self-destructed, that shut down because she couldn't handle all the all the emotions. Remember the guy that? Yes, yes. He sees her, then he starts to see Miramane, and he sees Miramane. He, he, I am Kirok. Then he sees uh, um, Edith Keeler, and he sees there's another character that they bring in. There was a woman who was like a different character that we don't know about that he was in love with on the Farragut. Remember with the you know the big stinky uh, the the uh, blood sucking gas cloud, right? Um, she's she was one of the one of the uh, one of the casualties for, from that. So basically, he's dying because his his it's like he. He can't deal with – oh, and he keeps seeing a little girl that's running around on, on, on the ship and he keeps trying – everybody thinks he's going nuts. So um, – and then Spock does a mind melt with him and Spock sees all the women too. And then it's like his – Kirk's psyche was fighting himself because of the loss of all these women and how it had, you know – it's not a bad episode. I liked it. I'm not saying you guys will, but, you know, I like the new stuff they're doing on, on Star Trek Continues. And that's all I got to say about that. I will be checking it out. I'll let you know. Have you seen any of the other ones? I've seen two of the th- other three. Yeah, because they've got the one with uh, Apollo. That one I saw. I saw that one, yeah. And I thought that they, was good. Then they've got they, they got one that has Gil Gerard on it. it he's in like He plays an admiral in an o- opening scene. Admiral? Admiral Gerard. He looks fat. That's all I got to say. I was like, "That's Gil Gerard! Oh my god, he's fat again!" Because he had that operation to um, it's skinny. Yeah, is it a de? Is it a defectomy? Or he had um, a fatectomy. It's called a gastric bypass. Yeah, he either had the gastric bypass or the or the lap band, one of the two of them. But yeah, he lost it because uh, he was huge at one point, and he lost a whole lot of weight after that operation. Oh, but... Well, well, maybe I maybe I've just never seen. Maybe he has. I don't know how big he was. So, he was huge, but uh, you know that that often happens over time. People that have that that operation and they end up, you know, years down the road, they kind of backslide and put it mm-hmm. back, you know, put it all back on again, or a lot of it back on again. And that'd be that'd be a shame that, you know, if that happened to him. Oh, I think that was the one with uh, had Lou Ferrigno as a um, Orion slave master. Then there was the Mirror Universe one, which what what happened after they beamed back, what happened on the Mirror Mirror Universe ship was a nice story, too. And then then, then there's this one. So that's the four, I think, that they've done. Yeah, I didn't see the Mirror Universe one yet. And they got the hot redhead ship's counselor. I sense aggression, Captain. (laughs) Oh, she's she's not a touchy-feely. She's more like a psychiatrist. She's not like Deanna Troy, useless. All right, so back to the why, why don't we do a show? Overture, hit the lights. Scott isn't going to join <sighs> and have fun. Come on, Scott. <laughs> oh, what heights will hit? Go on, on with, with the, the show. show. This is it. I'm dancing in my seat, but you can't see. Oh, oh thank God. <laughs> anyway, hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. <laughs> that was a very subdued entry. <laughs> hey, everybody, and welcome oh, to Back to the Bins. Waka, waka, waka. I'm done. I'm, I'm Paul Spataro, and I'm joined by these two idiots. Hello. <laughs> my mom says I'm special. 
<laughs> she, she, she always puts a pin inside my jacket to, so I can find my way home. <laughs> Wait, I thought this was Avengers Spotlight. I'm D-Man. I'm here for my episode. <laughs> we do need to do a D-Man-focused episode. Just for- oh, that would be a riot. I would love that. <laughs> we, we should do a whole episode like the sorriest Avengers. <laughs> Dr. Druid in his onesie. Who else? What was that bird chick? De- Death, De- Death Cryer. Cryer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah really? There was there were some lousy ones. There were some ha- I kind of want to say Cersei, but yeah. even Star Fox to some extent. Oh, I yeah, he sucks. <laughs> hey, how you doing? Hey, what's <laughs> up? Guy, guy that looks at you and makes you fall in love with him. He's like the, the white Lando Calrissian. You know? He's just a walking what dead. Rape. Rape. That's he all he is. Walking dead. He's Bill Cosby? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Too soon? I'm stealing jokes from Star Wars and character? Ooh. <laughs> Dude, I've been listening to that. Uh, just like binge listening to that show. And Are they not hilarious? Did I not tell you that? It's cracking me up, man. Cracking me up. It's making me feel so bad it's taken me this long to, to really get into it. But I'm, I'm into it now. It's like there's hardly an episode goes by I'm not texting Matt about something. And he's probably going... Dude, that was four years ago. I don't even know what the hell you're talking about. Who's the stalker now? Yeah, I know. I've, I've become that guy because people do that to me. They go back and, you know, they discover Two True Freaks or one of the other shows that I do. And then they, they go back and they binge listen to all the early ones. And then they start sending me PMs about, you know, just out of the blue, though, you know, something that to them makes perfect sense because they just heard me say it on a show. And to me, I'm like, what the hell are you talking What? You know? So it'll be like it'll be like that guy at a science fiction convention that says to William Shatner, "Excuse me, Mr. Shatner, do you remember <laughs> what the combination was on your safe and your quarters in episode seventy-two of what?" Yep, that's exactly what I've become. Because I, I texted him because I was listening to one of the episodes where they were. Uh, well, you know, they do trivia at the end of all their episodes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the question was, what is the serial number of the trash compactor? And I'm I'm talking back to this podcast. So that's a sign it's a really good show and I'm talking back to it. And I blurt the number out. And as I, I no sooner blurted out than one of the guys goes, who the hell would know that? And I'm thinking, whoops, <laughs> I know that. So I texted Matt. And I'm like... I'm that guy that knows the number of the trash compactor. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> can't help you. Did you? I did watch the uh, the Star Star Wars panel from Comic Con. They had it available online. I saw mm-hmm. bits and pieces. I for some reason I just couldn't get into the whole thing. Well, it was interesting just to see everybody together. There's I, no question about it. Of the three originals, Harrison Ford is the most. Uh, you know, energetic looking. He's the one who you could actually see still in an action movie. The other yeah. two, not quite so much. He's the one whose paycheck has the most zeros after it. That's why. <laughs> That's true, too. And he was, you know, like they started asking about, like, you know, could you picture, you know, what did you picture yourself doing this or whatever? And, and Harrison Ford says, quite honestly, I never pictured myself doing this. I've really thought that was, you know, it's something I did 30 years ago, and I never thought I'd be back doing it again. I never really even considered it. Really? Tell, tell us another one, Indy. <laughs> well, oh, I'm sorry. Too soon? But, no, but I think I think George, before George Lucas sold the rights to it, it didn't look like there was ever going to be any more. Yeah. Now it looks like there's going to be so many that uh, they're going to bowl us over because they're doing, you know, they're doing the new trilogy plus the standalone. You can't swing a dead things. cat without hitting a Star Wars movie now. Uh, you know, I mean, it's going to be like that and you're gonna, it's going to become like comic movies where, 
you know, well, you, you don't necessarily think every one of them has to be an absolute hit. You know, there's going to be some hits and misses probably. Mm. But if they're, if they're putting them out, you know, it sounds like they're going to put them out try, like, you know, on a pace of about one a year between the, uh, you know, the trilogy and the anthologies. So, you know. Well, they got to create that new expanded universe. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think I think they said they just started filming on whatever the second release will be. Rogue well, One. Rogue One, right? Yeah. Rogue Which is something. supposedly the story of part of the story of the Bothan. Many Bothan spies died to bring you this movie. I don't know if it'll be the Bothan spies because this is going to be about the first Death Star, right? Were Bothans involved with the first Death Star too? No, I just... thought I don't know. I thought I heard read something. And, uh, about Bothans. I, Paul, Paul I could Campbell. be wrong. Matt Mark Hamill said something just like, I'm just glad I didn't have to go to Tashi Station. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that line. Yeah, that one I did not watch. I watched the the one that was put out where, you know, it, it played like, you know, like an auto commercial where, you know, you, you get to look at all the workers in the factory going, you know, I take pride in my job and I'm doing the best, I, you know, that sort of thing. But it, it was very schmaltzy, but at the same rate, I, I kind of appreciated what they were trying to do. They were trying to, you oh, know, they, they should have just come right out. Effects and everything? Yeah, they should have just come right out and said, look, it's in good hands. We, we love it, too. You know, we're not going to mess it up. And that's what they were trying to do without just saying the words. And I, I kind of appreciated it. And at the same rate, about halfway through it, I started to get annoyed with it. I'm like, when we just just cut to the chase and just come right out and say, you know, we're we're doing the best we can, and we don't you know we don't want to mess it up any more than you want us to mess it up, kind of thing. But what did you think I, about that that thing that they had walk out on the stage that walked in front of them? For I was, the panel? I mean, See, I didn't watch any of the panel. It was interesting, but you know, I'm sure seeing it in the movie, it's going to look much more real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just looked like a really good cosplay. <laughs> but. uh the other one I the other one I watched so far was the uh, the new Fantastic Four movie one, Ugh. and boy, you know, the the fir- one of the first things the director says is, yeah, I was never really a fan of the comic all that much. I, I mean, I like the cartoon. So he, why are you hiring somebody who doesn't even care about the source material? Mm-hmm. That's just stupid. Because it's working so well for DC. Well, actually, I I like the Flash TV show. I love the Flash TV show, but that's different. We're not we're talking movies, right? So, I, mean, I yeah, I saw the commercial. I mean, not the commercial. Uh, the the new trailer for that. I I don't know. So I, what? Bruce, I, Bruce Wayne doesn't become Batman until the destruction of Metropolis. Oh, now we're talking. Uh, that's what I got out of the trailer. I, I was like, eh, what? No, I think he's already he's already been Batman. I think. And then he retired from Batman. I think he might so be retired like, and coming out of retirement. A la Dark Knight Returns. Dark Knight. Oh, okay. Hmm. But uh, I'm, I'm, you know, and and as we all know, I, I enjoyed Man of Steel, but I'm becoming more and more disenchanted. Hey, I gotta go. What I'm seeing about this thing. I think I gotta go wash my hair or something. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, uh, you know, scrub. You gotta scrub your scalp, right? I'm, I'm not, I'm not looking at it and thinking, yeah, that looks good. So. What's wrong with Holly Hunter? Did she have a stroke? <laughs> Because <laughs> she's like, Wah, well. I was like, what? What happened? Why I do you thought sound- that sounded like her voice. That and they, she was in like the opening of the trailer. Yeah, I just thought, I, man, she really sounds. Her speech really sounds funny. I thought what's what's her. up with the Kents? Are they are they like the worst parents ever now? The mother's saying, you know, yeah, they don't like you. F- them. <laughs> don't save them anymore. Tell them to go f themselves. That's not Ma Kent. That's just. I ridiculous. think I'm just gonna sit here and keep quiet. 
Anyway, so we have a <laughs> mailbag full of mail. That's disgusting. Our why first you, why you have to say mailbag? It just it just conjures mail images. Bag, you know mailbag. Mailbag. <laughs> first letter from Scott's mailbag. <laughs> Here's my mailbag. It never fails except when I get over 40. Oh, wait. <laughs> First letter is from Ron Sadowski. I know that guy. We've met him. He's the guy who doesn't know what a barbecue is. He presented us with an award. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're going to get more letters from Ron Sadowski now. So Ron writes, just finished episode 39. 39. In a row? 39. That's like seven years ago. <laughs> and notice that the show is clipped and does not include the Hulk review. I figured it out by listening to number 40 that you did it on the previous show. Just thought you would want to know. Ron. P.S. For the record, I'm not a fan of Scott and Mike co-hosting the show together. I prefer the dynamic of a Siskel and Ebert, and those two are more like Ebert and Roper. So you could read into that email however you choose, because I'm not sure what Ron is saying. <laughs> Anybody want to go on to email number two? Uh, or do you have a comment on Ron's, Scott? Because that's, <laughs> no. that's going back to before Bill and I were even thinking about being on the show. I, I, yeah, see, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure what to say on that. Or, well, or Mike and I... I have, hmm? Well, the only thing I have to say is where he said, just thought you would like to know, maybe think of the Pink Floyd lyric in the wall. This, If you listen close, you can hear the line where they say in the background, this Roman mill bakery thought you'd like to know. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> All right, so the next one here is from our good friend Luke Giaconetti. The subject is episode 191, where Captain America wearing his costume under a tuxedo is not the most ridiculous part of the show. Pliers of the time stream, Luke writes. He says, hey, guys, just finished listening to episode 191 featuring the wedding issue of Hulk and the inane Superman story where he turns into an ersatz King Kong. Oh, I love that one. This is <laughs> you a love strange... it because you hate it. <laughs> <laughs> a strange pair of books, but I laughed the whole way through the episode. Amusingly, right before I listened to this episode, my good friend Adam gave me two long boxes full of 90s comics, and in those boxes was, in fact, a copy of Incredible Hulk 418. I remember there being a decent amount of hype for this book at the time, with Peter David telling Wizard Magazine uh, that it was not going to be a typical superhero wedding where there's a big fight in the middle. The fact that any Marvel book, which is not an X-Men or Spider-Man book, getting hyped at the time was memorable in and of itself. Yeah, I remember. So the Superman books uh, just sounds incredibly bizarre, even for a DC Silver Age book. There are different opinions on when the Bronze Age actually began. One theory places it as starting with the April 1970 issue of Green Lantern, where Green uh, Arrow first joined the title. Others uh, I have heard include Marvel's publishing of Conan the Barbarian number one, cover dated October 1970, or the death of Captain Stacy in Amazing Spider-Man number 90, also 1970. I think that DC had a Bronze Age of sorts, but given the continued emphasis on each character having their own little kingdom, Superman stayed in his books, Flash stayed in his book, Wonder Woman in her book, etc., It did not have nearly the same impact on readers as it did at Marvel, since it allowed those editors to tell the stories they wanted to tell. See, that was my point exactly, is that Marvel, I think you can very clearly define their eras. I don't think you can do that with DC as a a whole publisher, because their different characters were in different places. Batman was not necessarily in the same place Superman was, as, as where Green Lantern was. I mean... You know, uh, uh, 
I don't want to say emotionally, but you know, maturity level wise, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I do. Uh, Luke continues. He says some pushed the envelope and created more modernist tales. Some did not and continue to produce outlandish Silver Age style stories. But that's just my opinion on the subject. No, I, I think it's a valid opinion, Luke. I, I agree with you. I think, I think we're uh, we're, we're kind of saying the same thing. Says if the Aurora Glow in the Dark ad you guys referred to on the back cover of Superman is the one I'm thinking of, yeah, that's pretty strange. Typically, Aurora's print ads would use the b- beautiful James Bama, B A M A, Bama, Bama, uh, painted artwork, uh, which was on their long boxes. So, why they went with this ridiculous art for this ad, I have no idea. For what it's worth, the Aurora Godzilla does have a strange head, but nowhere near as wacky as the rendition in this ad. I just realized that comics fans and modelers both use, use the term long box uh, and they refer to completely different things. A model long box is the rectangular shaped box that Aurora and other figure kit manufacturers sold their kits in. They are short in width and long in height in contrast to the more brick shaped boxes used for cars and military models. Hmm, interesting. I, I had no idea. Anyway, love the show. As always, you guys keep me entertained uh, in my commutes and afternoon walks. And Back to the Bins remains my favorite show. Aww. And that's from Luke Jack and Eddie. He has a PS here. He says, if you guys are willing to have me on as a regular guest star, I will bring a Charlton romance comic. (laughs) Partly so we can all revel in the Charlton uh, romance comic and partly because I would really like to be on the show with the whole crew. The whole crew would love to have you, Luke. Yeah, we we have yet to have Luke on... With the whole crew, that hasn't worked out so far. But yeah, I mean, well, Luke is always welcome. Yet to ca- his his check has yet to go through. That yeah, right. as well as long as we get paid, he's always welcome. But uh, you know, we'll we'll work on it. Trying to work a lot of people in. That's that's the problem. Is you know, there's so many people I want to get in, and and then I feel like I sh- I give some people the short shrift, not unintentionally, because I'm trying to work so many in. The shaft, baby. You give them the shaft. You should... <laughs> give them the high hat. <laughs> Well, uh, can we move on to the next one? Moving on. And the subject is not spam, X-Men and Flash Show from our buddy Brian Hughes, which is uh, our co-host of the Third Degree Burn podcast, new to our network. Yes. And and it says, guys, said like Star-Lord at the beginning of Guardians, thanks for continually putting on a quality show. We can always count on you. What show is he talking about? I don't know. Third Degree Burn. Oh. oh, okay. In regards they, they've to... always put on a quality show through one episode. <laughs> <laughs> and and they're going to have a kick-ass second episode because we're all on it, right? Woohoo. <laughs> Is it the second episode is going to be our... Cro- wow, it's like a Peter David book. <laughs> <laughs> In regards to this most recent show, here are a few notes. One, Storm's Costume. I talked at length with Tim Elliott on this, and he and I both recall that Xavier had got access to unstable molecules through his friendship with Reed Richards. We had previously seen in X-Men 132 where both Storm and Colossus changed instantly from formal wear to their costumes. This tells me that Storm must be using lightning in some way to reform her clothes into her costume. Bullshit! Yeah, I was just going to say, I call bullshit on that. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, that's saying that... that you can manipulate unstable molecules, molecules however you see anything. fit. No, unstable I mean the mo- way the way I understand unstable molecules is they will adjust to what they're the situation right. they're put in. Right. So that like when the torch to. lights on flames, they don't burn. Right, and they'll stretch with Reed. They'll turn invisible with Sue, 
and, and they, they don't just, they don't turn from street clothes to a to a costume. Yeah. Now I know in modern times they're both members of the Illuminati, and I know that it's even been retcon that as far back as Secret Wars, or no, not Secret Wars, Contents of Champions, I think it was that they were members of the Illuminati because there's actually a panel in Contest of Champions that shows the Illuminati together. I thought it went further panel, back than that. Coincidence. Because they go uh, to the uh, retconned, I think it does. But oh. at, at the time of, like, say, a book like X-Men 132, I, I, just, I don't recall ever feeling that Xavier even knew Reed Richards, no, let alone no, that he I'm was gonna, friends with him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn you on that. Okay. Uh, I believe it's right in Giant Size X-Men number one when she gets the costume. And I recall, and I'm, this is all off the top of my head, so if I'm slightly wrong, you'll have to forgive me, but I recall uh, her saying something about the costume, and then Xavier says something to the effect of the courtesy of a man named Reed Richards, whom you'll learn more about as time goes on. Something okay. along those lines. All right. Now, I think a better explanation that I, only, I just thought of till now would be that, okay, maybe it is unstable molecules, but it's been modified by Shi'ar technology, or... It's just some Shi'ar technology bigaboo. Sh- I'm still costume. calling bullshit on that. Mm. I think it's just a. Uh, I'm taking it as it's just an effect used in the comic, but it's not how she changes her clothes. Right. I, I don't. I don't believe. You know, it's just too convenient, and I don't like it. How convenient. Well, number Did she two. Say Shazam first. What's that? Did she say Shazam first? Yeah. Really. Note number two. You are right. Insert Paul comment here. He's talking to me. Oh, actually, I think we were. I think we both brought this up. Storm never could project any kind of force bolt directly from her. Most artists had a tendency to play fast and loose as to whether she calls lightning down from the sky or whether she can actually shoot them. But it was usually done in whatever way was needed for the story, as was in that story where she blasts open a door. I believe is where we're like, what? What and I'm, I'm going to back us up for a moment because I did find the page. That she <laughs> I found the page we're talking about. It's it's in Giant Size X Men number one. After Reed, ga- after Reed, after Professor, let Z- it go. You were right. Okay. Oh my, after God. he gathers the troop, and then they show them all standing in the room together. And Storm says, "The costume is beautiful and fit perfect." But how did you know? And he says. The uniforms are constructed from unstable molecules, which well, adjust themselves where necessary. Well, I obtained them from a man named Reed Richards, and I'm certain you'll learn more of him and his friends later. Thus endeth the lesson. Okay, whatever. Hey, speaking hey, hey, of hey. Shazam. No need to be rude. That's my job. <laughs> I just thought of something. I know this has nothing to do with what we were talking about. But speaking of Shazam, did you guys ever watch Young Justice? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. I've been watching through that on Netflix on my breaks at work. It's actually really, really good. I got to this one episode where Clarion the Witch Boy had done something to reality and he split it into into two versions. And in one universe, it was only the adults. And in the other universe, it was only the kids. And each universe thinks that the the other like vanished from there so like the kids all think that like the adults just mysteriously vanished and the the adults all think like the kids mysteriously vanished they don't realize what's happened and captain marvel becomes the center figure in the episode because of course he's both oh he could transfer between both exactly so by saying shazam he can travel back and forth between both universes and that's how they end up like solving the the situation Mm -hmm. in the episode it was really, really good because it really 
demonstrate it's one of the few times i can think in modern times when, when captain marvel was used to just great effect it was it was a really solid show couldn't tell you the name of the episode but it was really out. good i'm sorry so i'll have to make a point of checking that out i yeah, know there was stuff. a big outcry by um when the show was canceled people were like what yeah i'm gonna be well, it wasn't selling enough toys that's why they cancel all cartoons nowadays yeah that's what i heard well, point number three, Bill, Bill Sienkiewicz's art. Back at the time of that annual and the X-Men issue he had penciled, Bill, like many other young artists at Marvel, were penciling in the Marvel house style that was preferred by the editorial staff. This gave most of the Marvel books in the 70s and early 80s a similar appearance. I really miss this. Yeah, I, I remember we commented that the cover was really was had a different uh was was stood out more and was more of the Sankevich style than the interior. I'm sorry, you were about to say something, Paul. I was just saying when he said I really missed this, I was gonna say me too. I I, mm. I kinda like that because I like a more clean art style and that was the house style. So you you know, you avoided except for occasional issues, you avoided the you know, the dark, heavily, heavily inked books. I don't know. I'm I'm torn on that because I know what you mean about you know having a house style and and things having a, a somewhat similar appearance and all that, but at the same rate, if that had lasted, then guys like Sinkevic would have probably never become the legend that he's become. Now, granted, the the weirder he's got you know gotten over time, and the and the the more uh, I don't know what the word would be outlandish, I guess that he, his art style has gotten, the less I've liked it. But when he first kind of broke out of the the house style mold and kind of made a name for himself, those first few years of stuff that he did, I, I really liked his stuff because it was it was very unique. It was very different. Nobody else was really doing what he was doing at that time. I don't know. What do you think? Well, yeah, because what he kind of broke out when he took over New Mutants, right? So yeah, kind of really, it really went crazy. I think he had not, well, not out crazy before I mean, that on Moon Knight. Yeah, but I don't. Well, but I don't remember. I remember – well, maybe it was such a drastic change because I was collecting New Mutants back then and all of a sudden it's like, wham, what? Well, New Mutants <laughs> yeah, exactly. is just a book you wouldn't expect that dark style for. Mm-hmm. I think that's where it was so uh, shocking just because it's not not a style you anticipate in, in that type of magazine. Exactly. Well, it started mm-hmm. out with a very clean, you know, very yeah. – looks. You know, you had Bob McCloud in the beginning and, you know – you can't really get much more divergent than than Bob McCloud and Bill Sienkiewicz. You know, they're too interesting. Completely- uh, just totally veering us off topic again a little bit, but just an interesting book I was reading. Um, I started doing a West Coast Avengers run, uh-huh. and I got to the point where uh, you have a crossover between the Avengers annual and the West Coast Avengers annual. Yeah, is that, that the one where they're Hulk? playing baseball? Yes. Oh. And that very first issue, the the uh, regular Avengers proper annual it's actually penciled by steve ditko mm-hmm. and inked by klaus jansen mm-hmm. a very strange combo if you ask me but it seems to work because one of my biggest problems with latter day ditko is people seem to be afraid to actually ink him and and the art came off as way overly simplistic if and, you, uh... and jansen doesn't have that fear of anybody's work i guess right so, so he you know he went in and he inked it the way he would and it really seemed to work well for me. I, I was really surprised how much I enjoyed it. Because I, I generally only like Ditko's earlier work. Later on, I don't like it because, again, I felt like it, 
it was overly simplistic and people didn't want to, you know, impose their will on the inking at all. I know it's somewhat sacrilegious to have this opinion, but I've uh, outside of Spider-Man, you know, classic Spider-Man, I've, I've never liked anything. Di- well, with the exception of, of like Blue Beetle over at Charlton, I actually rather liked his Blue Beetle stuff. But I like again, Dr. that's Strange very Spider-Man. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, not long ago when I was doing my read through of Rom Space Night, the last, oh, I don't know how many issues, uh, maybe a dozen or so issues of, of Rom was Ditko. And if you want to kind of play out your experiment a little bit, Paul, take a look at those issues because almost every single issue had a different inker. One of them was even John Byrne. And I think that that those issues bear out what you're saying is that the reason that latter-day Ditko might not seem as whatever as, as the earlier stuff is just what you're saying. I think people were almost afraid to touch his art. But you can see with these different inkers, you know, which ones really worked because they they added something and, you know, they complemented his work and which ones, like, were very hands-off in it because some issues looked really, really good and then other issues were like, wow, this is crap. And mm. it's all the same penciler. It's just what the inker is doing or not doing with it. It's well, really, I, I would it's recommend taking a look at the uh, the Avengers Annual. I, I know the one you're I'm talking not sure about. If it's 13, I think that's, 14, or 15. Yeah. It's in that range. And uh, it's just, you know, I I was surprised with how much I thought the artwork really worked. I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think that is the exact point where I stalled out on my Avengers read-through. If I'm not mistaken, I think I stalled out on that annual that you're talking about. And it was because when West Coast came along, I decided to incorporate West Coast into my read and... I found West Coast to be a serious slog and it just kind of killed my my forward momentum on on that project. So when well, I go I have, back I have to Zoya to work my way through that and get to the burn issues. I want to and 42 issues doesn't seem like that long, but I'm telling you man, it was it was rough going. It was well, really I'm, rough. I'm going. trying to do it without burning myself out, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm figuring I just want to make myself read at least one issue a day. Right. And then we'll see, you know, we'll see how long I can go. He snaps like a twig. Uh, I can't take <laughs> it anymore. No, but one one more thing about Ditko. I, I, I haven't read that much of Ditko on Amazing Spider-Man, but I've read, I like what he's done on Doctor Strange and kind of the thumbprint that he left on Strange. And I'm curious when the, when the movie comes out next year, will we see, like we've seen some of the, the cosmic things that they've done and, and the visuals. I wonder if we'll see if any of that Ditko-esque magic universe t- stuff will make it to the Doctor Strange movies. Kind of curious. We'll see. Okay, no discussion on that. <laughs> Did you make a point? Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Number read. Number four. Hey, Paul, regard- what are these naked pictures I found while Bill was talking? What is it, more your Captain America schlong pictures? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I am a little fearful of any pictures you see any towards. Hey, check this out, true believer. Oh, my God, it's Stan Lee naked. Oh. Regarding the X-Men and Chris Claremont, I always found his work raised in quality when he worked with a strong artist who understood good storytelling. When he worked with artists that were weaker, Sylvester and Blevins, to name a few, the stories were not written as well. I think the Kitty Pride Wolverine miniseries underscores this. I have never been a fan of Al Milgram's pencils or inks, though his cover work transcends this. 
Al understands storytelling, though, and while I don't care for the artwork on that miniseries, I still enjoyed the story it told. The same cannot be said for the X-Men runs that Sylvester and Blevins worked on back then. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, that would be what? Like when they were in the uh, in the desert when they were. Yes. Oh, my when, God. When yeah. they were in Outback and all that. Yeah. You know, what's very strange is that that's the only time in my entire life where I was actively collecting the X-Men off the stands. And the only reason I was buying it is because Longshot uh, Long just kind of popped in mm-hmm. out of nowhere, joined the team for, what, a couple of years. I think and- back then they were they were selling. I remember because I was in the Navy and it was selling bi-weekly. Was right. Every, every two weeks they were pumping yep. them out. And as soon as he left the left the team, I dropped it like a bad habit because it, it was not very good. I mean, the stories were OK. I never cared for the whole living in the desert thing. I didn't care for the we're dead and now we're back. So we don't register on cameras bullshit that they quickly <laughs> dropped. And all. you remember that? Oh, yeah. Was, yeah, that's uh, because was, they went through the siege perilous to change. Yeah. Their, well, oh, well, God. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was it was awful. It was really bad. But the only thing I really liked during that time was I, I did like Longshot being around, and uh, and I liked that Rogue finally started to develop a bit of a personality. She was almost like Supergirl for a while there, because I remember the one where she had to stop the train was, was pretty cool, but that was about it. And his last note... La- oh, wait. The last note on the email. The death <laughs> of Iris Allen. I started collecting comics seriously at the age of 10, and Flash was one of the first books I started collecting. Now, you had said Iris was pregnant, but that is not the case. Barry and Iris had simply agreed on in the previous issue to start trying to have a child. Next, Iris is killed. music. Or wait, that would be because it's a flash and it would be over quicker. Next, Iris's killer was the reverse flash after Iris had rebuffed his advances. While they brought her back later saying that her essence was taken to the future where she had originated from, this was my first comic book, Death. Barry did consider dating Zatanna, and who wouldn't, but not, that's, I interjected that, (laughs) but not for long, and wound up dating and getting engaged to a neighbor named Fiona. He wound up stopping the reverse Flash from killing Fiona at the altar by breaking his neck from behind at the last moment, as he had no other way to stop him. Hmm, where have we seen that recently? I wouldn't know. Ah, let's see. I'm trying to think, which is not easy for me. <laughs> Keep it quiet. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. And my head hurts. <laughs> <laughs> One uh, right, you want to finish the letter? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I thought I had a point, but it just, like, like it earlier, died. it just died a lonely death inside my empty <laughs> head. I could say more, but my fingers are tired. Tired. They're all... thing. When you tell a story, have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. <laughs> <laughs> I could say more, but my fingers are tired. They're they are almost as old as Paul. Whoa! If you ever need a guest, feel free to call me. Yeah, like yeah, I'm calling you now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> too bad he's already been on the show. I I would love to be a part of it. Not anymore. Sorry. Great show. You keep. You keep recording them, and I will keep listening, because Paul will never have you back on. Thanks, Brian Hughes. I think we turned Brian's letter into the longest email ever. (laughs) The the con of emails. (laughs) Con! And our next letter is from Russell Bragg, and it's titled, Back to the Future 197, X-Vampires and a Crazed Flash. Back to the what? Back to the Bins 197. What did I say? 
Back to the future. future. <laughs> God, I'm like half asleep here, I guess. It's, it's, oh, it's the on, Alzheimer's. Wake up. Our next line. letter is from Russell Bragg, and it's titled Back to the Bins 197, Ex-Vampires and a Crazed Flesh. Hi, guys. And Scott. Oh, that's uh-huh. right. You sons of bitches did uh, did the X Men annual without me. Yeah, we also yeah, did. That was uh, what we just did in the last email. Wake up! <sighs> Hate you guys. Great episode as always. <laughs> Wait a minute. What, what, what's what, what's with him laughing about? He says hi, guys, and then he says and Scott. Ha ha ha. What what is that? Because you weren't on the episode. Ha that ha was- ha. <laughs> Uh, it's it's not true that I always don't have the books you're talking about. I never have all the books you talked about. This time I had Paul's book, but not Taco Bill's. I don't remember what Taco Bill is about. Do you remember? I guess Taco uh, Bell. Yeah, well, it's one of my nicknames, too, because I had a friend of mine. She worked for Ta- Taco Bell's advertising, and I told her. I don't know if I mentioned that on this show, but I told her. I said, you should get me on a T-shirt, Taco Bill. Like, Taco Bill says. Russell knows more about you than I do. I guess. The fate of Iris Iris West Allen is revealed in Flash 350. The Flash has been found innocent at his trial. I remember what my thought was. I'll get back to it. Oh, God. Write it down. Please, please share it with us. No, I think, and I think I've brought this up before. I, I uh, the, does it have uh, anything to do with Storm's unstable molecules and Reed Richards? No, it has something to do with Iris Allen and the Flash. Because I remember now, I think I mentioned it on a show. <laughs> I think I mentioned it on a show before. <laughs> Wake up, old man! Uh, what? What? Uh, that I read the novel version of Crisis on Infinite Earths, and there's oh, I'm sorry, there's stuff in there that there's that goes into further into the. Flat into the Barry Allen, Iris Allen storyline that talks about the future and going in the future and all that. But it's been so long since I read it, I don't remember. That was my point. Go on. Thank you for sharing that. Yep, yep. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Flesh has been found innocent at his trial. He travels to the 30th century to get away and visit Iris's parents. There, the Flesh learns how, upon her death, Iris, Al- Iris West Allen's soul was drawn back to the 30th century where her family had it placed in a new body. What? Bullshit. So the last page shows Barry and Iris together, but not really. Earlier during his trial, the Flash had remember, had his face reconstructed so as not to look like Barry Allen anymore. Iris's new body doesn't resemble Iris anymore, so they are together, but appearances are deceiving. Like uh-huh. both of you, I loved the cover of Flash 276. I finally have all of the Death of Iris Allen comics, and wish they would put them in a trade. Sorry, Bill, I don't have any X-Men comics at all. I never got into the X-Men other than the cartoon and the movies, but it was very, but it was a very interesting story. Actually, I think the only vampire-related items I own are movies. My wife bought me the Universal Classic Monsters complete 30-film collection for Christmas. Jealous. It contains <laughs> all of the Dracula movies from the 1930s and 40s, and we have Love at First Bite and Dracula Dead and Loving It. <laughs> oh, and the comic series when Batman turned into a vam- vampire, but that's it. Speaking of movies, you guys need to do another movie commentary. You always do a great job and keep me laughing for hours. Looks like you guys are closing in on episode 200. Well, that's behind us now. And I'm really excited about that. Wondering what you're going to do to make it special. I know it will be great. Show up. I guess I've been <laughs> rambling enough, so I'll close for this time around. Keep up the good work. Russell Bragg, Clarksburg, Clarksburg, West Virginia, host of the DC Comics Presents show. 
Russell, Russell, when it comes to to vampires, I'll give you a couple quick suggestions. Um, movie from the '80s that uh, we actually did a commentary for on uh, on uh, Two was True that, Freaks. Was that late Fright 80s Night? Or, oh, oh, yeah. Okay, I thought you did also Dracula. Yeah, I love Fright. Night. Oh, we did. Yeah, we did Dracula as well. Yeah, Dr- that's considered an '80s movie. I do, but I think that came out in I mean, that was in the late '70s, wasn't it? What like, it was either '79 or '80. Yeah, the Frank Langella. It was either '79 or '80 for that one, but it was yeah, right at right at you know right at the beginning of the '80s, essentially. Um, comic book wise, I I enjoy just about any time that Marvel's Dracula would show up in other titles. Um, there's a really good issue of Thor just prior to Walt Simonson taking over Thor. It's like Thor, I want to say it's like 333, I think. Is that the one with Sif on the cover? Yeah, where he tries to, yeah, he's putting the moves on Sif. Dracula is, I mean, and Thor and Dracula battle. And it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. I like it a lot. The art's a little lackluster, but the story's really fantastic. Um, Tomb of Dracula, you know, is a, is always a really good title, but, uh, I, I really liked when Dracula would pop up, um, in other titles in the, in the Marvel universe. But, uh, I, I really, really regret that I, uh, was not part of this episode because that book that you guys covered, um, was the second part of a two part story part. where Dracula fought the X-Men. Cause the first one was X-Men 159 where he was trying to seduce um, Storm. Storm, and then the annual was basically him coming back for a, for a second try at her. Mm-hmm. And between those two stories, between those two issues, that is still to this day my absolute favorite X-Men story, and it's mostly because of Dracula. Uh, I, I loved that take on Dracula and that. I really did. I know you guys were not fond of it, but uh, I, I love that issue. I think it's really good stuff. I don't think we disliked I it. I think we were... You know, just not as enamored as you, but I don't think we disliked it. I, I think we only had some major nitpicks on some of the some of the you know the costumes and mm-hmm. the the blasting of uh, doors open with force bolts. I uh, I particularly liked the way that uh, that Dracula was illustrated in that because he was very different from the Tomb of Dracula version. You know, the Tomb of Dracula version almost looked like like snidely whiplash or something to me, you know, he had the, the pencil thin mustache and all that. And this, you know, this one was much more suave and debonair and much more. Um, he, he looked much more like, like a count to me. He looked like royalty and he had the, you know, the nicely trimmed, uh, what you call it, the goatee and all that. I just, there's something about the version in that issue or, you know, in that X-Men story that I really liked. Uh, I don't recall him ever, quite having that look again at any point in the Marvel universe. But in that particular story, I thought it worked really well. Okay. Show killer. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> All right. On to the next one. Who's got it? Is it me? I think it's you. All right. Next one here is from Jason Sandberg. This one is entitled uh, episode 198, Alf Lobocop Secret Romance. Dear Binsters, Alf, Lobocop, Secret Romance, it's a testament to the chemistry of the show that you guys could cover this trio of dud books and keep me listening all the way to get, uh, all the way to Bill getting cut off by the end credits. Episode 198 reminds us that uh, who we go back to the binge with is as important as what we find there. Oh, that's that's sweet. You know that that sounds like that sounds like a tag for for future episodes right there, doesn't it? 
Mm. Sounds like one of those those DVD cover quotes that you could pull out. Yeah, we should put that on the uh, on the homepage for the show. I like that. Those same books covered by another podcast would have been a painful slog. I did miss having Scott there to say, frankly, guys, these books are shit. <laughs> I, that probably would be what I would have said too. No, I, it, I, it, it, no, it would have been. You know, I come on. And these are the books that you guys pick yep, when yep. I come on. You're Last right. week you did the X-Men annual, and now you pick this. Yep. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> you guys know me too well. <laughs> Jason says, I cracked up each time the hair metal hero said dark Kleenex. If he ever decides to cover an issue of ALF again, can I suggest ALF number 48? I want him to find whatever the hell. I have no idea what issue it is, but I want him to find the issue that uh, that does the Star Trek parody, because here here's here's a weird little thing that I was just thinking about this while I was listening to this episode. Because I, you know, whether I'm on the episodes or not, I listen to all the shows, and listening to this one just was cracking me up. But here's the funny thing: when it comes to Alf, I have two pages of original art from an issue of Alf that were given to me by Gil Gerard's wife, you know, Gil Gerard, Buck Rogers, given to me by Gil Gerard's wife, because we're friends and, and we, uh, we met, we were both going to the same college in, uh, in Georgia when I lived in Georgia, and that's how we knew each other. She gave me these two original pages of ALF. The two pages are part of a story that are a Star Trek spoof, and the pages are actually signed by Walter Koenig, who played Chekhov. I mean, it's just the weirdest thing to have dropped into my lap, but I've saved him just because it's like, there's, you know, that's just a great story, you know? You can't make something like that up. What's that? So I think that's pretty cool to own those. Yeah, I think I think it's really neat. I don't know how much money I would pay to own them, but I think it's cool to own them. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Uh, Jason continues here. He says, we need a thorough investigation to find out what the hell is happening on the cover of that comic. Oh, is that the one where he's, uh, he's with a seal? Is I that the one? I, I think, remember. I think it might be. Yeah. It's, I it's can't picture wrong. the cover off the top of my head. Yeah, it, it, It's all kinds of wrong. If it's the one I'm thinking of <laughs> episode 200 is on the horizon. So maybe you're saving some quote unquote good books for that show. Oh yeah. We had a doozy for that show. Have a great night, Jason Sandberg. P.S. On episode 197, Bill lamented that annuals aren't as prevalent nowadays. Can I suggest Fantastic Four Annual 1 from the fall of 2014? The art is by Tom Grummet. Ooh, I love Tom Grummet. And the story is almost standalone. Sue Richards invades Latveria to coax her daughter away from Doctor Doom. It's a healthy dose of what annuals used to be. Hmm. I had read that. It It is a good annual. Oh, you know what? He included a picture. Yep, it is the one. If you click at the bottom of that of that email, he included a oh, picture file of yeah. That's, oh yeah, okay, with the seal. Yeah. Oh, that is. Uh, I'm a, I'm uncomfortable right now. Wow. <laughs> wow. All right, I think Bill's up. Sorry, I'm just looking at the seal being. Uh, yeah. Whatever yeah. is happening to the seal. Yeah. All right, Bill, stop looking at the seal. <laughs> away from the seal. It's an Easter seal. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, and our next email comes again from Russell Bragg. Back to the bins of 199, Magneto, the Demon, and Sarge. Or Serge. We'll say Sarge. Hi, guys. I'm not sure which guys I'm talking to, but hi. To at least Scott, Paul, Bill, and hi to Mike, if you are still there. It's always good to hear Michael Bailey, no matter which podcast I listen 
to him on. It's funny, whenever Mike has a list of people to read, whether it's heroes or comic comic bleh, bleh, personnel, I always expect him to add B. Arthur and the 72 Miami Dolphins. Scott, the last one is a football team. I know that. <laughs> Insert stifled giggle here. Anyway, I didn't have any of the comics mentioned. Shocker. Cue Dr. Bill here with the eye roll. Jesus! Or whatever he does whenever I say I don't have something or I haven't seen something. <laughs> it was still a great episode. I had already posted th- uh, this next remark on Facebook, but Paul said I should email it to the show in case someone missed it. I heard a big funny during the show that nobody seemed to react to. Paul had recalled calling Dr. Bill bowel movement Bill on a previous episode, and then right after that, Dr. Bill called Paul the big P. <laughs> It cracked me up. Anyway, I'll be curious to see what comes after this episode. Uh, uh, after this episode 199, will it be 200? Will it be episode 199 and three fifths? <laughs> An Avenger spotlight? <laughs> well, yeah, there was a lot of Avenger spotlights there. I eagerly await the next episode. Whatever you choose, I cannot say thanks for keep. Uh, uh, I cannot say thanks for keeping me entertained at work since I don't work Saturdays now. And I just wait, and I just can't wait to listen. So I'll just say thanks for entertaining me. Russell Bragg, Clarksburg, West Virginia, host of the DC Comics Present Show, hopefully returning July 5th. Fingers Which crossed. I don't know what date it came back, but there is a new episode on the feed. So Sweet. It has come back. Come back. Oh, sorry. <laughs> come back, yeah, Bragg, I, I, come back. I did have a, uh, I did promise myself I wasn't going to do any fraction episodes so we filled the time with avengers spotlight until we got there but we made it mm-hmm. our next one is from oh russell bragg never heard of him and it's back to the bins 200 superman versus muhammad ali hello fellas what a wonderful show this was Aww. not just because it was 200 which is a tremendous feat in podcasting i'm sure the number is way higher with all the specials added in but it was nice that scott gardner was able to participate and it's always nice to hear michael bailey it would have been nice if Alec Berry could have made an appearance also, since he and Scott were there at the beginning. But that doesn't take away the enjoyment I had listening. Were there more guests that you wanted to appear but were not able to? I do remember seeing this one on the stands. Of course, 250 was pretty steep for me back then, so I had to pass. <clears throat> I do not have it in my collection currently, no, and I, I am positive that I paid more than... Says, oh, excuse me. I do have it yeah. in my collection currently... And I am positive that I paid more than two fifty for it from eBay. It was an honor to be included in voicemail form. I was shocked you didn't have more. I thought for sure you would have to devote a large portion of the show to voicemails. I guess I care more about back to the bins than others do. <laughs> oh well, it was a great show, and like I said in my voice message, here's to another hundred episodes, Russell Bragg. Host of the D- Clarksburg, West Virginia, host of the DC presents DC Comics presents show. I, I actually thought we would get more voicemail too. I had put out the call for it, and and I got two. <laughs> you know, he had asked here, uh, were there more guests that you wanted to appear? You know, I'm trying to remember who else was on the show in that interim period between when Alec left and when I brought Michael Bailey on. And the only one I can think of off the top of my head was I did at least one show with the Super Future Friends. I'd like to have them back on at some point if they're still interested in podcasting. To the best of my knowledge, they have not had a new episode out in ages. I'm thinking it's been at least a year, so I'm not sure that they're even still podcasting anymore. 
but I still maintain that they are they are one of the funniest um, duos that that I've ever heard podcasting. I, I'd like to have them on again because they were really fun to uh, to podcast with. If they'd be interested at some point. Beyond that, I'm I'm really struggling for who else guested during that time for i just i just don't remember off the top of my head i, I well, pretty much was grabbing anybody that uh well, i believe there was a gentleman named trent yeah you may was be familiar he? with him but he wasn't with scott he did a guest episode later on when the show was in hiatus ah uh, okay anyway on <laughs> to the next email all right so we have one here this is from oh this is from mike of mike's amazing world mr mike voyles Feedback on 201. He says, hello, Paul and friend. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> you know what? Because I, I, I noticed that, too. I am not I'm, getting I'm relevated to and friends were on that episode. That's no, no, no. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Kukla, no. Fran, and Ollie. That's, that's what. <laughs> wow. I've been relegated to No, no, no. The... It was Paul had two guests on that on for that show. Right. That's why he I... said that. I think that's what the point is, that neither of you was on that show. I know what the point is. But if Bill wears a hat, you wouldn't see it. <laughs> he says, I just finished listening to Ben's 201, which featured a trio of guests. I haven't had time to listen to many shows lately, but I tune into this show occasionally when the books you are covering look interesting. <gasps> You're supposed to tune in every episode. That's the point. See, when they're not see what did I tell you, Paul? This is what happens when you spoil ahead of time what, what issues we're going to be covering. See, I told you. We don't spoil ahead of time what issues we're covering. Yeah, you do. It's it's right to in the, the picture for oh, the episode. Oh, well, yeah, I guess. If they, you know go on, if they don't want to listen, if, screw them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> screw them? What? Oh, screw them. So Mike continues. He says, I am a big, big DC Silver Age fan, so I enjoy the coverage and conversation of Flash number 170. Jesus, didn't you just cover a Flash episode? No, that was like six, seven issues ago. That's wow. it. Moratorium on Flash. That's it. No more Flash. We haven't done any Marvel team up lately. <laughs> it was fun to hear your points of view on this style of kookiness. Count me in as one of those people who didn't like the change in art from Infantino to Andrew slash Esposito. However, I don't blame that on Ross Andrew. He was paired with Esposito for decades, and I found their combined artwork to be rather ugly. Once Andrew's pencils began to be inked by other inkers, I became a fan of his work. So I have always blamed the ugly art on Esposito's inking. I've seen his uh, inks have a similar effect on other pencilers, too. I guess I'm just not a fan of his work. I was a little disappointed that you all unanimously disliked slash hated the Justice Machine issue. I bought that issue when it came out and followed the series regularly from publisher to publisher over several years. I was more into Willingham's Elemental series at the time, which is why I picked up the book in the first place. Uh, JM was usually a solid, or Justice Machine was usually a solid read. I still have the full run of comic, uh, is it Comico or Kamiko? I can never remember. I Don't say Comico. Is it Comico? Comico stuff, though admittedly I haven't read it in years. From the era in which it was published, the 80s indie scene was quite different from the mainstream Marvel slash DC fair. In this case, uh, I would have liked to hear a different viewpoint from someone who digs that kind of stuff. I can totally understand that it isn't for everyone. You know, I, I have an issue of... I, I don't remember off the top of my head what issue you guys did at Justice Machine. I have one issue. It's the issue that Byrne did the cover for. And to this very day, I don't think I've ever actually read it. Is if, that the one that you did? If memory is accurate, Professor Allen's the only one who read the whole series. And he had said, read 
on a whole, it was superior to an individual issue, if my memory is correct. Hmm. But the the individual issue, I remember not caring for it. Was it? It wasn't number one, was it? No, no, it was like number three or something like that. Okay. Uh, Mike continues. He said, "What's uh, more surprising is that you all preferred the fill-in issue of a terrible Marvel's '90 title like Sleepwalker." I also bought this one uh, as it was coming out and didn't like it at all. The entire series was lower than D-level Marvel work of the time, in my opinion. I was mainly buying it because I was crazy, or I am crazy, and was uh, buying darn near everything at the time. I totally get that Chris has become the sleepwalker guy, but to me, this series is on par with NFL Super Pro. (laughs) Dun-dun-dun-dun. Bum-bum. You know... Don't tell Chris Tyler I said anything, but I agree with you. Yeah, never, never a fan of the Sleepwalker. I've, never, I've been having fun doing those. I, it it is. Me. I mean, listening to them is is a riot. But uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't. You know, on my own, I would not check those issues out. Uh, anyway, despite our differences in views on a couple of books, I really did enjoy the episode. Well, see that that's the important thing right there. I I still maintain that. You know, while I like to do a good classic, you know, Superman, Muhammad Ali or, or whatever, I still, on the whole, I think I have more fun with these episodes when we cover something that's just pure shit myself. But, <laughs> you know, you can't do that all the time, but it's fun when it happens. Good luck and continued success with the show. Regards, Mike Voiles of Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which you can find at www.mikesamazingworld.com which is my go-to site for comic booky stuff. It's been a long time since uh, I had an opportunity to speak to Mike, so it's good to hear from him. Mike's a good guy. He's a hell yes, of a good yes, guy. Yes, he very much is. And he is our... He's our webmaster. webmaster. Yes, he is. Webmaster. I, for one, welcome our new webmaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, in our final email for this evening, or this morning, or this afternoon, or whatever time you're listening, is from... Is subject line the big two o o from our friend and compadre Luke Giaconetti, and it says pliers of the time stream. Well, gentlemen, I just finished up finished up episode two hundred of Back to the Bins, and I have a few things I felt needed to be said. Uh oh. First off, congratulations on making it to episode two hundred and for maintaining oh, such a fun, entertaining atmosphere the entire way through despite the changes in the lineup and format. There's a reason why I always name Back to the Bins as my favorite podcast. For a while, the show notes included a quote from me saying that Back to the Bins is too good not to listen to. I, I think meant, it still has that. I don't know. I I think on, on the individual episodes, I think that's oh, yeah. quoted. I have it tattooed on my ass. <laughs> too much information. I thought oh, you had sorry. WW on each cheek when you fart. It says, wow. <laughs> Turn on your head and says mom Anyway, I meant it when I said that And I still maintain it today Secondly, I want to thank Scott See, look, you were first I should be Mike, Paul, and Doc, why am I last? Because you should be Okay. For their time, effort, enthusiasm, dedication And fortitude for providing myself And all of the other listeners With so many hours of free entertainment As well as letting me join in on the fun A few times Wait, he's been downloading this for free? You pirating son of a bitch. <laughs> He's getting this off the pirate bay. Har. I always relish being invited on Back to the Bins because I know it's not only going to be a fun evening of comics and other random nerd talk, but I know the episode itself is going to be a blast to listen back to as well. 
Well, as soon Third. as the check clears, Luke, we'll have you back. <laughs> Thirdly on the show, Paul asks, what does Back to the Bins mean to you? To me, Back to the Bins is the podcast equivalent of what Scott described as going to a convention with your wingman. Listening, listening to the show always makes me think of times going to a con or a comic shop with my pals, combing through the back issue bins, finding whatever looks cool, and then talking about those books. You guys are essentially our virtual wingman where we all get to vicariously live through the show as if we are there. Oh, sorry, I'm just, I sound like Foster Brooks. I'm trying to belch and hiccup at the same time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Luke. It wasn't your email. I don't know. Maybe it's a, I'm a little gassy or something. Anyway, I'll start over. You guys are essentially our virtual wingman where we all get to vicariously live through the show as if we are there with you talking about these books. I regret missing out on Eternal Con. Ah, oh, yeah, that would... One more person at Paul's house. <laughs> would, have, would have been, you know, if I were listing the people who, I, who weren't here, who I'd like here, Luke would be on that list. Heroes Con being literally the next weekend pretty much made that impossibility. But we'll, but we'll do whatever I can to be at the next Two Two Freaks meetup just so I can experience the fun and excitement which we get every week on Back to the Bins. As to the Muhammad, uh, Muhammad, as to the Superman versus Muhammad Ali, I have never read this one, being way before my time. Shut but up, I, Luke. But I've always <laughs> wanted to do so, just from the insane high high concept nature of it. For your coverage, from your coverage of the book, it sounds like it more than lives up to the to that gorgeous cover. That uh, to that gorgeous cover, the treasury might be out of my reach, but I may have to add the trade to my punch list next time I go to a con. Keep up the good work, fellas. Thanks for this wonderful anniversary episode, and here's to 200 more. Luke. P.S. Good news. I found another issue of Huckleberry Hound in a 50-cent bin at Heroes Con, so I'm all set to do the indie on my next guest spot. Luke, Sounds Jack, good. and Eddie. See, I, I, I love these emails from Luke because it is so obvious that he really, really wants to be on the show again. So for Which that the, very we reason, <laughs> we we can't have him back on because as soon as he's on, he's going to be like, "Wow, really? That, that all that built up for that? These guys are assholes." And then and then these letters will dry up. So keep them coming, Luke. <laughs> and we'll think about it. <laughs> and with that, we close our sack. <laughs> oh man, sack. <laughs> wow. All right. Now, having read the email and cleared out our email bag, do we have time to do a book? That's up to you guys. That is entirely up to you guys. It's your book. It's up to you. Um, I you mean, see... I don't have to be up really early in the morning. Do you have to be up early in the morning? Well, we always have to be up in the morning. We yeah, have I have to be jobs. up early, but I, you know, I can, I can give a little bit more time to the show. All right. I can do some more. So we want to go ahead and dive right into this? Let's do it! Dive into right. it! Okay, so... For this episode, we do have a book. See, it's not just an email episode. We actually snuck a book into this one, too. So for this time around, we are, looking like slap at... a bitch? <laughs> we are looking at, from the Gilberton Company, Inc., is the publisher on this, Classics Illustrated, number 105. This is a 15-center from it depends on it's what the hell resource well your cbr that you're looking at is 25 cents but i actually have here's the story with this this is this is how this book got chosen for this episode 
So recently, uh, I was doing some back issue hunting at uh, some local Orlando area comic book stores, and I happened to chance across two massive long boxes chock full of classic illustrated comics. Now, believe it or not, I'm actively hunting some issues of Classic Illustrated because of my obsession with collecting all the comic books that are represented somewhere at Walt Disney World. And there's three issues that I've been chasing. I found two of them uh, at the... No, wait, I'm, I take that back. I found one of them at Eternal Con. Um, I found... What was it? Was it 20,000? Yeah, it was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea I found at Eternal Con. And there was two other issues that I, I still need to collect all the ones that I need. So I, the other two are um, War of the Worlds and The Time Machine. And so I found this this these two long boxes full of Classics Illustrated. And I was so excited. So I start digging through them, found War of the Worlds for $2. And unfortunately, the, the run that, that was in these two boxes was almost complete. But wouldn't you know it? Time Machine was one of the few issues that was not in there, so I didn't get that one. But as I'm flipping through these Classics Illustrated, now I will freely confess that what I know about Classics Illustrated, you could fit into a thimble. I really know very little about them. I, I know that you know they had an incredibly long run, that it's very highly regarded you know, by, by people who grew up with this stuff and all that, but I really just don't know that much about them. And I was really just seeking the issues I needed and wanted to just move along. But this particular issue that we're going to cover tonight just struck me. The cover is gorgeous. I mean, a lot of the Classics Illustrated covers are really beautiful because most of them are fully painted covers, you know, really richly detailed. But this one really struck me because it is a painted cover and it's painted in that in that like classic 1940s cartoon style. If, if you've ever seen like a classic like warner brothers cartoon or like one of the classic like fleischer superman cartoons this this looks like it, it could be like a cell right from one of those and i just loved this picture and i was like that's really cool and between the cover what the story actually is and the fact that it was only two bucks i said you know what screw it i'm gonna I, sight unseen of what the interior was gonna be like or anything i bought it just because i love the cover on it so the story in this one is adapting Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon, which I've always wanted to read, you know, the, the book, and I just I've never gotten around to it. But I love the cover um, to kind of give you an idea what the cover looks like. It, we're, we're looking at this tilted angle of the Earth, you know, of, of just this landscape. And there's this tremendous blast going off that is propelling essentially a bullet-shaped, like, missile-shaped objects into the atmosphere, which is about all I really know about the story of From the Earth to the Moon is that they, they get to the moon by being basically shot out of a cannon. That much I knew from the old, um, from the old film. So going into this, now the only credits I was able to find on this was that the, um, the art on this was done by a guy named Alex Blum, B-L-U-M, either Bloom or Blum. I'm going to say Blum. And that was it. There are no 
writing credits on this whatsoever as far as like who actually did the you know of course the stories by jules verne but who did the adaptation you know who adapted it for comics none of that's listed in here and you know after hunting all over to try to find who the artist was i just noticed that on the inside front cover that uh opening splash page blum has actually signed the work down in the lower right hand corner i just noticed that for the first time so this is, uh, and you know, there is a really beautiful opening splash here. It just says, From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. And it, it kind of gives a, a basic setup of what the story is going to be about. But this splash page is really gorgeous. You've got these three men and a dog that are very, I mean, very, very Victorian era looking out the window of their, their space capsule at the moon that's like fast rushing up at them. So as we start this story, this is just after the Civil War has ended. And we're at a meeting of the uh, Baltimore's famous gun club. And these three guys are sitting around and basically they're lamenting the fact that the war is over and they miss the sound of of cannon fire, which is just kind of ridiculous. And they get a letter in the mail from this guy. His name is uh, Impy Barbicane. Now, I'm just going to refer to him as Barbicane, but Barbicane just strikes me as funny because it sounds like... It sounds like something you would put on a sore. It's like it's like a combination of like like Barbasol and and Lanocaine or something. You know, it just sounds like a medicine to me. And Impy Barbicane has come up with this idea that he has figured out that the moon comes into close proximity to the Earth every 18 years, and that this period where the moon is going to be at its closest is coming up fast within a, a, like 18 months it's going to come around again and he's come up with this idea that he wants to go to the moon and so he uh, he's basically challenging the gun club to come up with both the funds and the idea the science on how they can actually make this whole thing happen and there's a great little sequence where he's basically explaining the planets and how our solar system works and how the the moon orbits around the earth. What's really fun with this is I don't know if this is going contemporaneously with the novel as the novel is written, or if this is where we were in our own uh, knowledge at the time the comic was written. But according to this, there are five planets that orbit the sun. As he's giving his little explanation, you've got Earth, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. There's no mention of Mars. There's no mention of what other ones are missing out of here. Pluto, Venus. Oh, Pluto. Yeah, Venus. Venus was the other one I was trying to think of. And then uh, it also mentions the moons of the various planets as well. And uh, I know that uh, Jupiter alone has has many, many more moons than are mentioned here because it only mentions four. So it's, it's just funny seeing, you know, the knowledge that they have in the story versus what we know today kind of thing. Now at this point, did they think the moon was made of green cheese? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> so he's coming up with this idea and, and he's, he's laying out all the science. All the science is very wonky. So somebody who's, I mean, I won't, would never, ever, ever label myself an expert, but as someone who is a serious enthusiast of you know, say like early space flight, Apollo era and everything like that. The science is in this. It's just completely friggin' ridiculous. But anyway, as he's laying out the science of, of how he intends to get to the moon, we cut to this other guy who's essentially Barbicane's biggest rival. And his name is, uh, is Nickel. And 
If I it had a goes nickel in, for every... Oh, sorry. <laughs> it goes into this really weird explanation of, of why they don't like each other or, or why... Basically, Barbicane doesn't really not even like nickel it's like he he almost just like blows him off like he's like he's a non-person but nickel holds this grudge because apparently barbicane was some sort of munitions expert or something during the civil war and nickel kept coming up with this material that he would say ah you know there's no way that that you can penetrate this material and then barbicane would quickly come up with a way that he would invent a new shell or something that would be able to penetrate it and it just kept pissing nickel off so he's held a grudge all these years or whatever it, it didn't make a lot of sense to me what that was all about but anyway uh barbicane actually because he goes public with his plan and everything is actually able to generate uh Revenue, you know, to basically through contributions from the citizens of the world, he says they end up. Uh, we are the world. <laughs> they end up getting over five million dollars sent to them in which to go forward with their plan. Now, their plan essentially comes down to they go to Florida, which I thought was very <laughs> cool. This this is actually part of. The Jules Verne's book. I mean, very prophetic because you have to remember this book was written well, in the nineteenth century. I mean, the mid nineteenth century. Yet it was very prophetic about you know where we would eventually launch our rockets to the moon from, being Florida. So they go to basically the Tampa area of Florida, and they find this perfect you know what they deem to be this perfect plateau from which to to launch their capsule. And they employ thousands of people and they, they set up these factories and they dig this massive hole, they pour metal, and basically what they do is they build an in-ground cannon that's gonna hold this enormous capsule and the capsule is what they're gonna use to, to go to the moon. They're basically going to fire a capsule out of a giant cannon and hopefully hit the moon as it passes by when it when it passes at its closest point. That's essentially what this is all about. And yes, it is about as ridiculous as it sounds. Then they end up getting a, a letter from this guy, uh, Arden, who's, fr who's a Frenchman. And Arden proposes that he actually wants to ride in the, the capsule that they're intending to send. So it was a little bit unclear to me what exactly the intention was here uh, up until the part where Arden joins the story because I thought the intention always was to go to the moon but then when Arden comes in and lays out his plan and everybody acts so shocked I realized well gee I, I guess all they were intending to do was like shoot the moon with this capsule they weren't intending to actually go there I guess but Arden actually comes and he has a plan and he, there's a great little cross-section cutaway thing of the capsule where it explains you know there's a there's like a little living area he's taking along gas for his gas lights because you have to remember the era that we're talking about no electric lights yet uh he's taking barrels full of water some food um some plants to kind of scrub the air and then you know regenerate air and he, Get he's those people air. <laughs> he's intending to ride inside this capsule i'm sorry so jerk i i think it's 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 a lot of fun. It's I mean it's it's pure wacky, and I'm wondering just how close or not it is to the actual novel itself. Because if the, if this really is a pretty much straight up adaptation of the novel, then I hate to say it because as as much as I respect 
Jules Verne is a visionary and everything, this comes off as extremely infantile if this is really kind of the idea that he had for his novel. But I, I'm going to I'm going to chalk it up to maybe it's being simplified for comic book form. I don't know. But uh, anyway, this Arden guy shocks everybody when Nickel actually puts the question to him. That's that was on my mind from the very beginning of this story, which was, OK, so you want to go to the moon. You want to be shot there out of this you know, ginormous cannon. How are you going to get back? And he just tells him flat out, I do not expect to return. So he's actually putting his life on the line for this, for the, the purposes of, of science, essentially. And he plans that once he gets to the moon, he says uh, he's going to relay back any information that he has by using something called the block letter system. I'm not really sure what the hell he's talking about here. I kind of think what he's talking about is like when you see in old movies where somebody would take rocks they were stranded on a like a you know, remote island and they'd take rocks and they'd form like SOS, you know, form the letters out of rocks so that it could be seen by a passing plane or something. Yeah, I think that's, that's what he's talking about here. So he's intending to get shot to the moon, never be able to come back and be up on the moon using rocks to form words to tell people back on Earth what the moon is like. <laughs> OK, sounds like kind of a pain in the ass, but all right. Good luck with that, Arden. <laughs> exactly. So then there's this really wacky thing that goes on where Nichols gets kind of pissed off and really indignant about the fact that he feels like Barbicane has actually talked uh, Arden into this craziness. He pulls a gun on him. And this is when, when Barbicane actually, for the first time, really seems like he gets likewise irritated with Nichols. So he ends up challenging him to a duel. So they're supposed to go out into the woods with rifles like men and settle this thing. Well, Arden decides that uh, he can't be responsible for this. So he actually sneaks out into the woods. And I really thought something fun was going to happen here. Like maybe they'd accidentally shoot him or something. Nothing like that ever happens. He actually goes out there. He manages to actually get the two of these guys that, I mean, they're ready to kill each other. And suddenly, with just a few words, he, he's able to convince them that, hey, why don't you come along with me? <laughs> hey, and so they drop their, their little feud and everything, and they're like, okay, yeah, we'll go with you. I, I just thought that was a little bit weird. And they conduct an experiment, which is just wrong. They're not sure yet, despite you know Arden having planned out the what the missile's going to look like and everything. They're not sure that they'll actually survive either the explosion that's going to launch them or the impact of when they actually get to the moon. So in order to test this, they take a, a like a miniature capsule and a cannon. They put a cat and a squirrel into the cannon and launch them. It's just... <laughs> it's just cruel. So then... The, nothing! <laughs> so there's this... This ridiculous shot of them going out into the harbor and retrieving the shell. They're out in a rowboat. They retrieve the shell. They open it up, and the squirrel's gone. The cat's the only thing that's in the cat. But the cat has a very big belly. And yeah, and they're like, just... <laughs> and they even say, um, "He's just very perplexing." The cat seems all right, but the squirrel is gone. What do you make of it? And the you other call yourself basically... a scientist, right? <laughs> the other guy says, "Note the robust state of of health." Enjoyed Burp. by our feline friend. Yeah, he ate the squirrel. I didn't know that cats ate squirrels, but whatever. So eventually, you, time to. We, we almost down. had that when we sent Bill uh, in the spaceship with Alvin. <laughs> <laughs> so Alvin the time ticks down to, to launch time. 
and uh, and all the preparations are made. They they load the ship with all the provisions they need, and at the last minute, um, they actually bring along two dogs, which I thought was just really strange. They're they're bringing these like hound dog looking dogs with them. Um, Arden comes in with these giant, st- I mean, massively large sticks of what looked like dynamite. I mean, it's like cartoon dynamite. And he says he's bringing them along because the force of their blast is going to slow down uh, their speed so that they can land on the moon. So essentially, he's going to use these almost like retro rockets, like the explosion from them to to slow down their their plummet to the sort. I don't know how the hell that's supposed to work, but okay. At least well, he was kind of scientific thinking, and complex. I'm sorry, well, I can't understand. <laughs> well, I mean, it's while it is extremely naive. At the same time, at least Vern was thinking about physics sometimes in the story. You know what I mean? So it gets down to uh, to the moment here, and they have a little countdown, and one of the members of the uh, of the gun club pushes the plunger, and boom, there's this massive explosion. Now, what's really funny is it says here, it says, a great red flame rushed up from the mouth of the gun. Mastin, who is the guy that pushed the button, says, was blown off his feet. Yeah, it should have blown him to kingdom come. Because he's like three feet from the, essentially from the barrel of the cannon. And they've already emphasized a million times, you know, the tremendous force and you know the amount of, of, of explosive that they're doing for this launch. And basically, this guy just gets winded by the blast. Now, it, it should blow him to smithereens. He's so close to this thing. Um, the next page is really awesome. It's this beautiful splash page done in a very... You know, it, it reminds me, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of, like, Action Comics number one. Um, you know, we only got the briefest of explanations of, of Krypton and Superman being sent to Earth and all that with the rocket. But that's very much what this one page reminds me of, as you see... You know what's supposed to be the earth down below but just by the way it's all rocky and weird looking it almost looks like some barren moon or something this massive blast coming up out of it and then you just see the capsule launching itself toward the moon so from here it gets really really strange and a lot of exposition as they just kind of make weird observations the the inside of the capsule itself just cracks me up because it's this weird you know, again, very Victorian, almost, you know, Captain Nemo style inside of the ship. You know, these guys are, are dressed very much in, you know, like, uh, you know, the period clothes. The one guy, uh, Barbicane, actually looks a lot like a combination of, like, Abe Lincoln and Uncle Sam in the way that he's dressed. And just the, you know, it just gets so strange from here. You have, you know, they get hit by a. Uh, uh, a flaming comet, they call it, that knocks them off course a little bit. And when it does, it actually, the impact doesn't hurt them. It throws them around a little bit, but it actually kills one of the dogs. So because they don't want this this dead dog in there with them, they decide that they're going to put the dog out. So there's this one part where they just <laughs> casually just open up the airlock, you know? And I mean, it's not even an airlock is in like two separate windows or anything. It's, it's just literally like they open a portal and put the dog out. And the only mention that's made about, you know, the vacuum or anything is... Uh, quick, the oxygen's going to get out. Barbasol or whatever the hell his name is. So, yeah, he says, quickly, we must not lose precious oxygen. I'm like, no, no, no. This is not how this works. The moment they open that thing up, they'd be blown out into space and all of the... All of the atmosphere would rush out through this massive hole that they've created. But 
Anyway, yeah, exactly. I can go along with the gag. So poor puppy, he's he's put out into space. <laughs> they finally he wasn't really dead. They they reach the oh, I'm trying to remember what they're called. There's a scientific name for this, and I've completely blanked on it. But there there's these like there's these like zones between the heavenly bodies in our solar system where there's uh, effectively there's no magnetic or, or gravitational it, pull between. Uh, Lagrange? Lagrange, thank you, that's it. So they Not reach to be confused this... with ZZ Top. Right. Well, they oh, reach oh, the Lagrange oh, oh. point, and it's when they reach the Lagrange point that suddenly they're weightless. Um, I'd just like to point out, yeah, this isn't how this works no. at all. <laughs> <laughs> they would have been weightless pretty much from the from the beginning of you know getting out of Earth's atmosphere, but still... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some really nice, uh, nice shots of you know again these uh, you know period costume folks you know in their very Victorian surroundings floating around and everything. Suddenly, Arden spots out the window. Behold the moon! They're rapidly approaching the moon, and the one part of this that I really did like, the one part that I, I really liked again that that Vern was thinking was they realize that something's wrong. They should be headed straight for the surface of the moon, yet they're not. The The thing that they collided with earlier has actually knocked them off course. And it is uh, Barbicane that actually makes the, uh, the statement that unless the moon grabs them in a certain way and pulls them down to the surface, they're doomed to just remain in orbit forever they're gonna they're gonna stay up there they'll they'll either freeze to death or starve to death whichever happens first but they're going to die and then be eternally like entombed in orbit if this doesn't work and what's really neat is it doesn't go the way that i thought it was going to go it actually the moon doesn't grab a hold of them and so they freely admit we are doomed we are going to die up here um there's a great moment where where barbara Kane actually looks out, he figures out whatever's going on and he turns to the other men and he says, I regret to say we are doomed to circle the moon at this altitude until death overtakes us and our shell disintegrates and floats away. We lack the power to save ourselves. And I thought, okay, this is actually really interesting because something like this could have happened on at least a couple of the Apollo missions that I can think of where the, the crews were in real danger of this very thing happening to them. So what do they need to do? Well, they need to find a way to slow down, essentially, so that the moon can can grab a hold of them so that they can descend you know, to the moon's surface. So then they remember all of the um, rockets that they brought with them. Now, this is the part here that makes no sense to me, is suddenly we see they've got what looks like the same portal that they put the puppy out in is jammed full of all of the rockets with the fuses pointing you know, up into the cabin. If that's the case, they wouldn't be able to light this thing because the atmosphere would be rushing <laughs> out at the same... I, it makes no sense. I, I'm not sure if this is the same portal or not. <laughs> but they they stuffed the portal full of all the, uh, all the rockets and uh, uh, Arden, or whatever the hell his name is, he lights the, the fuses or anything and Barbicane slams the portal shut. They say, rockets away, and then the rockets actually explode. They go off, but it it's doesn't like Bugs work. Bunny throwing dynamite in and it oven. is. It's bam. It's, this part's really, really ridiculous. So the the it all goes off at once, and it doesn't at all go as planned. They they realize almost instantly that they are not falling toward the moon like they thought that they were going to. We cut to the USS Susquehanna, which is out at sea. 
This part I really liked because this kind of narrows down exactly when the hell are we talking about here? Because something I noticed way back at the beginning of the story is that they purposely left out when this is taking place because there's a reference here. It says uh, at the very beginning of the story, it says with the passing of the years after the civil war had ended and the great cannons of the North and South were silenced, public interest in artillery suffered a sharp decline on October 2nd, 18. And then it just says dash dash. So, you know, it's in the 1900s, but they're not giving you a specific year. Well, when we cut to this part with the Susquehanna, it says here, uh, the Susquehanna was on a mission to record the depths of the Pacific Ocean between Honolulu and San Francisco to guide the laying of the first telegraph cable from the United States to Hawaii. Well, the first transatlantic telegraph cable was laid in the 1850s. And then later on, as the technology got more sophisticated after the Civil War, like so in the 18, the late 1860s, they laid the more sophisticated cable and they would continue to lay cable as we you know, eventually went to telephone and these other things. So this places this story, you know, just a few years uh, after the end of the Civil War. So it, it kind of narrows down the gap a little bit as to exactly when we're talking about what era we're talking about. Anyway, from the uh, from the deck of the Susquehanna, one of the deckhands actually says, uh, look out above Susquehanna. <laughs> Sorry. We see the capsule plunge into the ocean. Now, this is only like the umpteenth time in this story that the occupants of this capsule should be dead. That impact, <laughs> if nothing else in the story had killed them, Whoosh. this would definitely kill them. There's no cushioning. There's no safety couches. There's nothing inside this thing to save their lives. No, man. They, they, they opened a window, threw a hammer out first. It broke the water tension in the water before they hit it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. Oh, wait, they disproved that on Mythbusters. So there's a whole lot of talky-talky in this part, and I really do like the art and everything, but essentially what it boils down to is at the end of it, uh, they are actually able to track down the the capsule. The capsule actually, I, I presume because of the air inside of it, um, doesn't sink. It actually bobs around in the ocean, uh, much like the real capsules, you know, years later. They go out, they uh, uh, hook a line to it, they open it up, and, uh, you know, the guys are all right. And it kind of ends on kind of a Star Trek, you know, a little do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, because you've got, you know, as they're greeted by their colleagues, their colleague says, were you afraid? And uh, Lana Kane, or whatever his name is, says, uh, when a man is nearly doomed to a lifetime of circling the moon, then survives a plunge of... 200,000 odd miles into the Pacific, he learns not to be afraid. The end. And I like that at the very end of this, and I'm wondering, I'm hoping that this was a trope of Classics Illustrated. I really don't know. This is the first Classics Illustrated I've ever read to my knowledge. But at the end, it actually says, now that you have read the Classics Illustrated edition, don't miss the added enjoyment of reading the original obtainable at your local uh, at your uh, school or public library. So it actually encourages you that, you know, if you dug this comic, go check out the original novel. And I, that's cool to me. You know, anything that encourages kids to, to actually read and, you know, be literate and all that. I, I, I'm all about that. There was a really interesting article that I believe it or not, I actually did read it and, uh, and learned quite a bit from uh, an article at the very end uh, a prose article all about Jules Verne, the author of the story that I thought was very interesting. Um, and then the filler pages are just bizarre. There's one that was all about 
uh, President Andrew Johnson in his impeachment, which I thought was very strange. Uh, there's one on Ponce de Leon that was interesting. And then the last one I didn't read yet. It's, uh, it says Stories of Early America, the Oklahoma Land Run, which I was just like, okay, what any of this has to do with uh, From the Earth to the Moon? I have no idea, but okay, I guess you just had to fill, you know, four fill extra up the pages. Book. Fill up the book. Yeah, exactly. So that was pretty much that. Now, uh, what, what did you guys think about this? I, I know that uh, you didn't necessarily get a get a full read through on this, but well, I was stopped by the opening page because that's Abe Lincoln, Abe Lincoln in space. Yeah, that is very much Abe Lincoln in space. Yes, it's like Abraham Lincoln went to the moon. What? <laughs> I'm so confused. And then, and then, right to the left, they were binding comics back then. Mm-hmm. It says, build your own library, collect and preserve your copies of Classics Illustrated in an attractive, permanent binder. And I was like, wow, they were binding books back in the 50s. In this well, that was, that was, those were different kind of binders. I, I actually remember they, they had those around for a while, and they would mm-hmm. just be basically almost like a you, you, almost, you, almost you like, like a, what you call it, a, uh, a binder that you would you know, just put the books into it. It wasn't, it wasn't a bounded oh, dish. Oh, I got you. I got you. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you mean you weren't working in a sweatshop as a small little kid doing this, Paul? <laughs> not, not quite yet. Not long I afterwards, though. Okay. It's always good to see a cat eating a squirrel. <laughs> yeah, the, the story, I never read the original story. I've never seen any other adaptations of it. I've seen one of the ones, I think that was done in the 60s or 70s. Uh, where they find the old man in his house, and he says, "Oh yeah, I oh, oh because they find some stuff on the moon, and they find a British flag, and then they go to uh, this old man's house because like his name was on something that, that that they found, and he tells them the whole story of how they had went to the moon and found all this. I mean, it's it's a that's loose, not I, first men in the moon, is it? Is it? Maybe it is first uh, men in the moon. I, I, I what, was that based on? This? I no, I think those are two different stories. I think. Hmm. Okay, yeah, maybe I got my, I'm getting my my authors mixed, mixing my metaphors. I'll shut up. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know that for sure. I'm just that that sounds vaguely familiar to me. Well, I know yeah, there was Bill. the I know there was the uh, uh, the black and white silent film was yeah that, George Melies yeah yeah in yeah, no. 1902 that's considered to be the first science fiction movie. Mm. Yep. Look at the big brain on Scott. <laughs> I know a thing or two. Um, but, it's, but, you know, it's, okay, go um, ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, go do, ahead. do we want to try to do any sort of grades on this at all? I, I, I figure we still have a little bit of talking to do about yeah. it. Just sure. Because, again, like I, I've never seen any adaptation of this, so I don't know how accurate it is to the actual book. Right. And I, I know Jules Verne is considered to be a, you know, a real visionary, as you mentioned. Uh, and, and some of the things he came up with here probably have you know a little bit of basis in reality and, and might be uh, beyond what the popular science was at the time. But you also, you know, you have to understand when you read something like this, you have to keep in mind that science at that point, you know, was not that sophisticated as far as right. the knowledge of, you know, the atmosphere beyond Earth and things like that, you know. So you got to take some of that with a grain of salt. Um, I mean, it, it seems to be a, a pretty brisk telling of the story. It doesn't lag at all. Uh, mm-hmm. The artwork strikes me as what I would co- you know consider kind of the standard for Classics Illustrated. Right. It's mm-hmm. it's almost like there's a Classics Illustrated house style, and this fits it. I really like the art in this. Uh, you know, this this is not 
my preferred art style and it's not something I think would be suited for every you know kind of comic but for this particular format and particularly this story yeah, I thought it, it, it would it wouldn't really go well, well with say a superhero story exactly yeah but, but for but, this but, you but, know, yeah, I, I, for, for like classic literature yeah you know it, it goes well I mean I, I think of I you know I've read some classics illustrated over the years but I couldn't tell you 100% which ones I've read but again this is the art style that I picture in my mind and and absolutely the spaceship was very reminiscent of the uh, action comics one because that's what I thought every mm-hmm. time I saw it and absolutely the one guy looked like Abraham Lincoln because when I first started to read it I thought that's who it was right. but uh, you know I, I I enjoyed it as as a diversion I don't think I, I don't all of a sudden have the desire to. Uh, to, to get a bunch of classics illustrated, but as right. a diversion, I thought this was good. These these are ones like we've talked about in the past where they're almost almost interesting to own as a uh, just kind of as a collectible more than mm-hmm. something I want to sit and pour over. Right. Uh, and and they they shot the poor puppy out, and that, that bothered me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that that's definitely the most disturbing panel in the thing is the is the poor dead puppy just floating and that's just ah, oh, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, the poor dog, he smacked his head. It's like, aww. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, we'll just eject him into space. What? The other dog looks really sad in that panel, too. Yeah. Aw, poor puppy. Strap them but, dogs in. What's wrong with you? But then he looks like he's having fun when there's no gravity. <laughs> right, that's true. <laughs> we. They're all kind of dancing around. There's a little martini glass in the uh, corner. Yeah, they've got they've got wine bottles and glasses, and you know there's there's no yeah there's nothing to secure them at all. There's no cushioning on the wall. I mean, all they've got is like these these funky looking couches to sit in. Like it's almost like a little conversation pit in the capsule. But there's you know there's no straps. There's there's no padding on the wall. I mean, how the hell did they survive? splashdown in this red there's no way that they would survive that. The, the one dude doesn't even lose his uh top hat and he looks like he's doing the charleston as they float right <laughs> well yeah plus plus when he hits the ceiling his top hat crunches you see it right uh-huh. yep that's yep. a nice little touch although yeah, in a few I, panels I later he's that. fixed it i guess he's popped it back out then I'll, you know poof. Well, i mean even if you could accept that that they do survive the splashdown and all that just the sheer amount of shit that's floating around in them you would think would hurt somebody you know you've got a telescope on a tripod floating around in there with them you know it's not secured they don't have it tied down or anything i mean can you imagine having the splashdown and yeah you survive but that thing you know knocks the daylights out of you so they had no plan to get back to the back to the earth well, they, they came right out and said, you know, he, he said, I, I don't expect to come back. Okay. What I noticed is that there's no mention whatsoever of the conditions when they get to the moon. What did they expect to find when they got there? And, you know, th- well, that they is thought a question. men had been there because as they're going around, they're like, oh, look, those, you know, according to one astronomer, some of those craters were dug by man. So I think they thought it had an atmosphere. That's what I'm thinking, too. Because Surprise. Nichols did ask um, Arden at one point. He says, "You know, what do you expect to find when you get there?" Pain. And, and he <laughs> he kind of evades the question. Perhaps he says uh, something to the effect of, "You know, if I knew what to find there, then you know, I wouldn't go." Or something. I, I think in the, as originally written, somebody else asked the question, and then the professor said, "His destiny." <laughs> 
He says, uh, I shall take a 12-month supply of food with me. As for your first question, if I knew exactly what I might find on the moon, there would be no reason for me to make the trip, which is rather evasive. <laughs> but That's I'm, actually kind of true. If I knew what I was going to find, why would I risk my life to get there? I, you know, the, the whole point is the adventure of finding out. But to me, this begs the question of at the time that, that Vern wrote the original story, were they aware that the moon has no atmosphere, that they couldn't you know, go there without some How sort they, of protective gear or whatever? I don't think they really had any way of knowing at that point. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. I like the very last panel. I just noticed the dog. The dog's like leaping out like, I am out of here. <laughs> right. I'm the one who's still alive. <laughs> Should have ate them on the way back. Well, you know, the the science is not just wonky in the outer space stuff either. I, I breezed over it rather quickly at the end of the story, but they spend a lot of time at the very end of the story after the capsule splashes down with this plot of, you know, how are we going to find the capsule? Because they think that the capsule sinks, so they actually go down in the bathyscaphe and all that. Well, I noticed that there's the scene where they go down in the bathyscaphe and they're looking around. The, the one guy, in order to try to find the capsule, is literally standing at the window of the bathyscaphe, shining a flashlight out <laughs> into the ocean. That would not work, okay? <laughs> it, does not, it doesn't work like that. Plus, I they don't go down. they, they hmm? don't really go down with, well, because uh, they don't have an air supply going down to them. So would these guys get the bends? Well, that pressure? was the other thing. I think they would. Yeah, because that was the other thing I was going to say is, you know, it shows them they are literally at the bottom of the ocean in one panel. And in then the two Pacific, panels later. Deep, yeah. And damn deep. Two panels cool later, he's he's opening up the door and just walking out. Well, no luck, sir. And I'm thinking you would <laughs> pop like a balloon. <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. But, you know, despite all that, I got a kick out of it. I, I really enjoyed this. I mean, I thought I would, I thought I would get a, a kick out of it from like just a historical perspective and all that. I didn't, I didn't really intend to enjoy it as much as I did. I really did enjoy it. I thought it was, it was fun. It, it was, you know, fun from a, from a more innocent time. And I love the look of things. I mean, you know, it's it's steampunk before steampunk, if you know what I mean. And I and I really like that. I, I get a kick out of the of the look of things, especially the the spaceship itself. Um, I, I thought that the the artist here really did uh, a, a really good job of conveying what I think that we all kind of think in our in our you know in our collective subconscious or whatever uh, you know that that Jules Verne stuff would look like. And if you want to see some scary steampunk, you can look at my new Facebook profile picture and my Skype picture. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. That's like Inventor Bill. Goggles Paisano. <laughs> Drives like a man going home on the freeway. <laughs> what did you guys think? I, I mean, I told you, for me, it was more of, it, it was more kind of getting a kick out of it from the historical perspective as opposed to reading it and saying, oh, this is a great comic to read. But I did get a kick out of it just the same. So, uh, you know, again, like I said, it wouldn't be something I'd want to read on a regular basis. I'm not going to, like, all of a sudden start seeking out Classics Illustrated. But once in a while as a diversion, fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do like, I agree with you that I like the fact that they're encouraging reading beyond the Classics Illustrated comics. Right. Encouraging people to maybe pull out the original and read it. 
you're hoping that this whets their appetite for more, you know, sophisticated fare. Right. But that's that's about all I got on it. If anybody in the listening audience knows more about how to tell like what edition you have and everything, I'd be really curious to learn. I tried looking this stuff up on the internet and if there's a definitive site out there for Classics Illustrated, I didn't chance across it, but I'm really curious because Mike's Amazing World, which is my go-to source for comic book stuff, didn't have anything about this incarnation of Classics Illustrated. So I guess Mike just hasn't gotten around to this yet, if he ever will. Um, so I went to um, Comic Book DB and looked there, and that's where I got the name of the artist and everything. They give the original publishing date of this particular issue, if I'm reading the site right, as 1953. March, if I remember right. I'm not looking at it at the moment, but I think that's right. Now, the the cover price on that issue, the original one, was 15 cents. Now, the issue that I have in front of me, the one that I bought, is also priced 15 cents, but on the inside front cover, the copyright date in here is October 1967. That's 14 years later. And then you guys are looking at an even different edition because the one that you're looking at is priced 25 cents. And I think it's 1969, I think. Yeah, it's the one that you have. 69, dude. Yeah. So that means they're, and I have heard this before about Classics Illustrated that they were constantly reprinted, you know, heavily reprinted because a lot of them wound up in like schools and things like that. But my question is how the hell do you tell what printing you have? I mean, is it strictly off of the the date that's on the inside front cover or what? Because, you know, these days we've gotten used to, like, say, when they reprint, like, I don't know, some new Marvel comic, it'll tell you right on the inside or sometimes on the cover, you know, second printing or fourth printing or 16th printing or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and books do the same thing. But I couldn't find anywhere in here that's telling me, like, what printing is this? Well, even the Marvel comics didn't always do that in the past. Mm, that's true. Uh, sometimes their reprints wouldn't credit where they were originally from, and sometimes they would. So I, I don't think there was any uh, overriding standard at that time. But I mean, as soon as I flipped the book over under the back cover, I knew right away that this had to be a reprint because there's a complete checklist on the back. It says, Own the Greatest Stories by the World's Greatest Authors, and it's a checklist from issue one, and this goes all the way up to issue 166. So unless they had seriously planned out the next few years of this, it had to be a reprint, which of course it is. Well, on the uh, back of ours, it's 169. Right, yeah. So see, it even goes beyond that. And you have a different picture, too, because on mine, the, the Classics Illustrated issue that shows us is uh, off on a comet, which I never even heard of. Mm-hmm. And then yours is what? Like Last of the Mohicans, I think? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, two different, uh, two different printings. Um, as far as letter grades go... Man, it's going to be a tough one. It's always tough for me to grade the really old ones. But um, I'm going to give the cover a straight-up A+, because the cover is is what hooked me. I mean, we, we've said this a million times, but the job of, of the cover of the comic, in, in our opinion, and you know, I agree with you guys on this opinion, is to sell the book. And that's exactly what it did here. I saw this beautiful painted cover, and I said, ooh. And I never even opened it. You know, I, I just bought it sight unseen. It was two bucks. I love the cover. I said, I'm sold at that point. It could have been pure shit on the inside. I still would have felt that I got my two bucks worth because I loved the cover. So the cover is a straight up A+. It's just beautifully, beautifully painted. I really like the cover. Um, the interior art, I like a lot. Now, this is not my 
you know, my preferred comic style art by, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. But again, for what the story is for the, for the era it's set in and, and what it's covering and the story it's telling. And especially when they leave the earth and they're in the capsule and you get that very steampunky feel of the technology and everything. I, I think the art's fantastic. I, so I really like the art. Um, I would say, gosh, it's really hard to say cause this is just so out of my comfort zone for, for art. But, uh, I think I'd have to give this a straight up, uh, a straight up, say a minus. Cause there's definitely some room for improvement. Some things that could be touched up a little bit here and there. Some of the art, you know, some of the anatomy is a little wonky from time to time. Arms get longer and shorter and things like that. But overall, I really like the art. The coloring is very good too. Um, and then the story, the story is the one that's the toughest for me to grade because I don't know how faithful it is to the original source material. I'm going to guess that it's very close and maybe they just kind of, for lack of a better term, that they maybe dumbed it down a little bit for, for a kitty comic. I really don't know. That's just a guess. But I mean, I was able to follow it and everything and I thought it was a, a fairly entertaining story, but it's a little bit odd in parts. The whole thing, the whole rivalry between Nichols and uh, and Barbican, I really didn't understand what the hell the point of any of that was. And there was one or two other moments that were a little bit strange. And then the rescue of the capsule at the end just felt like filler to me. So some of that's a little bit strange. And of course, even providing for what they knew of science-wise about a trip to the moon and what the moon would consist of and all that, there's still some really wonky elements where they just, you know, with with no regard for anything, they just open the door to the to the capsule twice while they're in flight and, you know, silly things like that. So... The story itself, I'd probably say, I don't know, like a C plus, B minus. Because it was fun, it was entertaining, but it's it's awfully naive by today's standards. So, you know, uh, that's I think that's about as fair as I could be about it. But, uh, but overall, again, I, I got a kick. I really enjoyed it. A lot more than I expected to. The cover kind of reminds me of... Um... I mean, maybe because this came out in the 50s, but like some of the 50s movies you would see. Yeah. Uh, like the old space movies, the way that they actually drew it here looks more like those modernist, those futuristic spaceships mm-hmm. that really weren't as futuristic, but looked pretty cool back back in the 60s and, and the 50s when you were watching them. Um, Did you ever see any of the... Um the the Disney movies that I think they were made for the Disneyland TV show, they were called Man, Man in Space... I might have. I can't say for sure. There's a lot of. It's probably blurring with other things I saw back then. It reminded um, me a lot of that too. So, I guess a cover grade for getting your attention. It's you know the capsule's being blown out of a giant hole in the ground and it's way above the earth. Uh, I'll give the cover an A, a definite A on this. Uh, you know, it's it's it, it does grab you. It's you know from the earth to the moon, boom, on its way. The I- interior art. I still love the. Uh, the Abe Lincoln <laughs> on the front page, and and it almost looked—I couldn't. It almost looked like somebody else, but I can't really put my finger on it. Alfredo I Alcala. I was gonna say a, a touch of Neil Adams, maybe. A, maybe it's the shading of some some of the stuff on there. Vaguely. That opening splash to me, if I if I had to, if I had to try to describe it in modern, you know, more or less modern comic artist terms i would say 
like Bernie Wrightson inked by Alfredo Alcala okay. or something but like that's, that. Yeah, Bernie Wrightson. That's that's what. Yes, especially the way uh, Arbicane or yeah, Fight Abe looks. <laughs> Fight Abe, Space Abe. <laughs> um, the rest of the interior, it's you know, it's it does portray the story. Um, there's no major. It's a very work. I mean, it's it's a straightforward. With the art, there's it doesn't really it's not wonky, right? Um, it's it's a period piece too for the times, and they keep everything as well within, you know. Um, oh, sorry, I just got to the cat in the in the thing again. <laughs> <laughs> the fat cat. Why is he fat? So um, art wise, I'm gonna give it. Uh, I'm gonna give the art an A as well. And then the story is is a classic story. I mean, there is some wonky things, but you know, from the time. This was written. I can't really fault it for that. So I mean, I, it, it is a classic, and I will give that an A as well. A all around. All right. Cool. I'm gonna be the Debbie slightest bit. No, no, I'm not gonna be because I'm not gonna be more than slightly below you guys on it. But I am gonna be slightly below. Uh, I like the cover. I think it's well drawn. I like the painted image. I just I like the color scheme on it. Uh, but I. Even from the classic comics perspective, I can think there are some that I like more. Uh, I don't know. Maybe if the ship had just a little bit more definition to it instead of just looking like a bullet. I, I don't know what it is, but it's almost a little overly simplistic for me. So not in any respect that it's bad, but I think I'm going to give it a B instead of an A. So you're expecting like fins? I don't know. Like, I'm not right? sure what I, I'm not sure what. Maybe a window. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe the little thing, maybe, maybe see the, the puppy dropping out of it or something. I don't <laughs> uh, the, the art on the interior, as we were discussing, to me, it's, it's what I think of as the classics illustrated house style. And I think for what they're drawing for, you know, for what the types of stories they're doing, I think it, it's perfectly suited to it. Uh, you know, I would prefer that the one guy didn't look quite so much like Abe Lincoln, because he really, really does. But I, I think that the interior art is, is, is really good for the purposes it's to serve. So I'm going to say a B-plus on the interior art. And story-wise, I'm not, I've never read the source material. I don't know how true this is. I know the original story is considered to be, you know, an all-time classic. So I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt. And I'm just going to, I'm going to kind of blindly just throw an A on the story just because it's a classic story that I'm thinking I, I haven't totally got an understanding of. Um, and overall, I'll say a B plus for the book. So, yeah, I'm not as high as you guys are, but I, I'm not certainly not blasting it by any stretch of the imagination. No, I, I think yeah, I think your assessments are very fair. You were you were much kinder to the story than I was overall because I didn't mean to be harsh about it, and I, I feel like maybe I was in my grading, but yeah, no, I I think that was very fair. Well, I'm glad you guys liked it. I'm glad you weren't like, oh man, what a piece of crap that was. So. I like you know I I mean I. Tend to gravitate towards superhero fare, but every once in a while, when we go off that course, I like it just for the mix that it throws in. Just trying to bring a little bit of culture to you, uncultured slobs. To you, stupid people. <laughs> next, next time on an all new Back to the Bins, Charlton Romance, Apollo Smile Two, <laughs> and NFL Super Pro. Hell yeah! Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. 
You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Well, on page 21, there's a cat in the story. There's a cat in the story, and he's in a tube. He ate his little squirrel buddy because he went to the moon. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. I'm like, where the hell was there a cat? Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, because they, they put a cat and a squirrel in, and then they they shoot him off as a test run, and then they, they find the shell, and they open it, and the cat's the only thing, and they're like, what happened to the squirrel? Why does the cat look so healthy? Duh. We've been working on that for the opener because Alvin was in my chair. So I try, tried to move him, and we're going to inter- interject. <laughs> I don't even know why I had to look for a sound effect if you're going to do that. <laughs> you can do it as Arnold. <laughs> Come on, stop moving me. <laughs> Oh. <laughs>